Well, good evening, Hickory Grove, and welcome to the pastor's class. We've now been taking this class that ordinarily would meet on campus at both of our campuses, and we've been providing the teaching online for all of you who are joining us for this broadcast. And so we're really glad to have you be a part of this study. Now, this pastor's class has been walking through all semester long the Apostles' Creed. Now, that creed, it's one of the most, it's one of the most ancient of the Christian creeds, a statement that summarizes the Christian faith. And what we've been doing is taking it phrase by phrase all semester long so that we can see the wonderful orthodoxy of the Christian faith encapsulated in that ancient creed. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at one of the last phrases of the creed. We've had 13 weeks of curriculum prior, so go online if you'd like to go catch up with those lessons. Today what we'll do is we'll focus on one of the last phrases, the phrase that says simply this, the forgiveness of sins. And as we pull apart that statement, I want you to feel the weight and wonder of an otherwise, you know, run-of-the-mill statement. You hear the statement, the forgiveness of sins. My word, you hear that so much in Christianity, you can kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. And so today I'm asking you, I'm inviting you to just take a step back and to reconsider a phrase that you would otherwise think you got down pat. Let's chew on this phrase together just for the next half hour or so, and I pray that the Lord will use this statement as we see it in His Word. I pray He'll use this statement to change your mind and heart, particularly with reference to how good, how good the gospel is for you. And so I want to pray for us, but before I do, I want to read a text that's going to guide our time tonight as we study this simple statement, the forgiveness of sins. Now, of course, I could go to many passages in the Bible to help us see this statement. But what I've chosen is one statement in the book of Romans. It's a book, if you go to Hickory Grove, of course, you know all too well. In the book of Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, there is a profound description of the goodness of the gospel of forgiveness. And so, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, I want to read just through verse 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Would you join me as we pray? And let's ask God's help as we study tonight. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would come and take this word and impress it on our minds and hearts in a way that I simply cannot. And so come, Lord, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, be our teacher now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The greatest problem in your life right now may not be what you think it is. Today, we are acutely feeling the effects of the fall. Maybe while you're quarantined in your home, you are experiencing some effects of personal problems in ways that you just haven't previously. Maybe your health is a scare for you, especially with everything that's going around, you're starting to get concerned. Maybe the close quarters for your marriage has exacerbated problems that have been there for some time. Maybe the economic uh, distress happening in our country right now has you particularly strapped. There are many personal problems that somehow dominate our minds 
Or you can just take a step back and think of some wider global problems that you may have trouble thinking of anything greater than these, such as, well, I mean, for example, the pandemic, of course. You see this pandemic ravaging the world and you can't help but wonder, could there be really any worse problem in my life than this? I don't want to make light of those problems. They are real and many folks are feeling the acute effects of them this moment. But the Bible is clear that there is one problem that transcends all others. There is a greater problem the Bible teaches than any problem this world has to offer. And that problem is this. You and I, we cannot come before the presence of a holy God. As sinners, we are unable to come into the presence of His holiness. We are separated from Him and there's nothing we can do to break that separation. Now the reason this is the case is because the Bible describes God's holiness as a consuming fire. That means God's holiness cannot stand the presence of impurity. If impurity were to come into His presence, He burns it up. And as sinners, if we were to come into His holy presence, we would be consumed by His glorious holy fire. This is a weighty problem for you and for me because we have no hope in and of ourselves. There's nothing we can do to rectify this situation. We cannot come into His presence. And yet here we are. Here I stand. There you are. We have not been consumed. Why is this? Why am I drawing breath this moment? Why are you in the comfort of your home if indeed God is holy and we are sinners? And of course the answer is simply this. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has extended amazing grace to us. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you and me. We once were lost, but we've been found. We were blind, but now we see. Now, you know that song, but I wonder, do you believe it? Is the gospel of God's grace good news to you? Is the sound of His grace sweet to your ear? If you were honest, my suspicion is you'd have to admit that there's many times it's not. There are many times in our lives as believers where we intellectually call the gospel good news, but the truth of the matter is it's really not near and dear and sweet to us. It becomes ho-hum. It becomes just another teaching. It becomes elementary, Christianity 101, and we want a little something extra. We get tired of hearing it again and again. And I wonder why that is. Why do we grow weary of the greatest news the world has ever heard? Why in my heart do I start to kind of glaze over when I hear this message again proclaimed to my own soul? I think one of the reasons why is this. We tend to be nearsighted when it comes to the gospel. When you're nearsighted, it means you can't see far away. When I was younger, I used to hear the song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and I always wondered why that song had those lyrics, because when I looked up, I didn't really see twinkling at all. I kind of just saw some blurry little dots. It wasn't until I was in college that I finally got a pair of glasses, and then one day, as I'm walking across my college campus at night, I looked up, and this is almost embarrassing to admit, I was astounded that the stars 
they actually twinkled, so to speak. I looked up and I could see it at last. Those glasses corrected my vision, and by seeing through them, I could now see the twinkle of the star. And when it comes to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we tend to look at it without corrective lens. We see it, and it's a little blurry. We see it, and it's intellectually good news to us, but we don't feel it. We don't treasure it. And one of the reasons we don't feel and treasure the good news of the gospel is because we have not put on the lens of our sin. Now, when I use that statement, the lens of our sin, I mean simply this. The gospel is not good news until you put on the lens of the grievous, bad condition you and I are in. And it is only when you see the gospel through the lens of your sin that it at last becomes good news. Now, you know this probably experientially. For example, in my own story, I heard the gospel all growing up. I was raised in a believing home. I was reared in the church. I heard the gospel countless, countless times. But there was one day when I was around 12 years of age that I was at last confronted in a way that only the Spirit of God can do. I was confronted with the reality and weight of my sin. And it's, at, it's like scales fell off my eyes. It's like glasses, so to speak, were put on my face. And at last, I saw the gospel as something unspeakably good, something I could never earn. The gospel at last became good news for me. And so today, what I want to encourage you to consider with me is one simple statement that is going to override the whole message from the text today. And that statement is simply this. The power of forgiveness is measured by the weight of sin. We know this word forgiveness. We know that God's forgiveness is powerful, but we don't feel its power until you and I feel the weight of our sin. And so today what I'd like to do is simply offer two easy things for you to see. And I want you to see these with eyes of faith as we look into our text tonight. And those statements are, number one, I want you to see with me the weight of your sin. Look, if you will, at verse 23 of Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, this is one of those well-known verses in the book of Romans. Most of the children in our church have this one memorized. I want you to sense with me just how loaded this one simple verse really is. You see, the weight of sin that we see in this verse, you could characterize it in at least three ways. One of the ways you could characterize the weight of our sin as sinners is this. Number one, you and I, we really have no defense as sinners. Because notice what the verse says, all have sinned. That phrase, all have sinned, is past tense. That means, guess what? It is already a truth. It's a reality for you and for me and every person who draws a breath. The Bible teaches quite clearly that every person living and gone has been and always was a sinner. Now, we know this because the Bible teaches in the book of Genesis that when He created mankind, He created them perfect in the paradise of Eden. Adam and Eve enjoyed the luxury of the presence of God. But that serpent, that crafty serpent, deceived them. And in so doing, sin 
entered the world. Sin broke all that was good in creation. And from that day forward, the scripture teaches a curse has come upon mankind. And that curse involves simply this, that you and I, we are forever marked by sin. Theologians will call this original sin. I think a simple word for us to just hang on is simply this. You and I are by nature guilty, guilty, guilty. And when one is guilty, we have no defense. When we stand before a holy God, it is hard for us to make any defense that isn't laughable when indeed we are guilty. And so I want you to just feel the weight of your sin for a moment with me and bear in mind the oppressive reality that you and I, we have no defense before a holy God. The temptation for all of us is to make a defense. One of the chief ways we tend to do this is by comparing ourselves to others. You, you know you're not perfect, but when you compare yourself to your coworker or your spouse or you know one of your good friends, you start to justify yourself. You start to build a case within to say, you know what, I'm not that bad. God should forgive me because. And I want you to hear with the full weight and authority of the Bible that before a holy God, we have no defense. Moreover, we also lack, we have no excuse. Look, if you will, again at verse 23, but let's look at the next statement. It says, for all have sinned and fall short. Now, it's hard to notice this in the text, but that word have sinned, I already mentioned that was past tense. But when you see the statement fall short, that's actually present tense, which basically means this. You and I are presently falling short. This isn't something that has happened a time or two in the past. You and I, moment by moment, day by day, are falling short. In other words, it means simply this. We are, from head to toe, infected by the curse of the fall. You and I are sinners by nature. We don't just sin on occasion. Every aspect of our being is depraved. Every thought, every emotion, every inclination is tainted to one degree or another by the effects of the fall. I am by nature a sinner. Therefore, I have no excuse. Sometimes we like to excuse our sin as just being weak moments, but we justify ourselves by having a long track record of faithfulness or longer periods than we have in the past of goodness. But the portrait the Bible paints of our sin, the portrait the Bible paints of the weight of our sin is that before a holy God, we have no excuse whatsoever. We cannot justify ourselves. We are daily, moment by moment, falling short. This is not something that you will improve in your lifetime. It is indicative of our nature. We are by nature sinners. We have no defense. We have no excuse. And one third and final thing we lack that we see in verse 23 is, number three, we have no escape. No escape whatsoever. We cannot escape the punishment we deserve. Look, if you will, at the end of verse 23. For all have sinned, and they fall short of what? The scripture says, of the glory of God. Now, when you see that statement, fall short of the glory of God, 
I want you to see the I want you to see the import of that statement. When you see the glory of God, you are talking about such an infinite measure. You are talking about such a glorious standard that to fall short of it implies for you and I infinite wickedness. The best way to read Romans 3.23 is to read with it Romans 1.23. For verse 23 of Romans chapter 1 says, We have exchanged the glory of God for images. We've exchanged God's glory for created things. We've exchanged the infinite creator for the finite creation. This is what it means to fall short of the glory of God, to exchange who He is for lesser things. And the scripture is quite clear that when you do this, the wages, the earned judgment for that sin, for that terrible exchange, is death, separation eternally from a holy God. The punishment for our sin is eternal judgment and condemnation. And so I want those words to ring in your ears for a moment. Guilty. We are totally corrupt, unable to break out of this. We are completely deserving of condemnation. The most just and right and good thing for God to do this moment is to bring us to this point of judgment. Let the weight of your sin just rest on your shoulders for a moment. And if it's uncomfortable, unnerving, something that something doesn't feel right about this, that's good for you to feel this way. It's good for my heart to see the utter darkness, the despair, the impending destruction of my sin. And the reason why is just like a jeweler takes a diamond and puts it on a black velvet backdrop so that you can see the glistening diamond more clearly. This is what sin does for us as we look at the gospel. We must paint this black backdrop of sin so that at last the good news, the weight and wonder of forgiveness can at last be appreciated. So at last you and I can look at the gospel and with tears running down our face say, good, precious news. For I don't want you to just see the weight of your sin. I want you to also see tonight the power of Christ's forgiveness. And you can't appreciate that power unless you feel the weight of your sin. You can't measure the power of God's forgiveness unless you measure the weight of your sin. And so having seen the weight of sin, now behold what God has done for you and I who lack a defense, who lack an excuse, who lack a way to escape the punishment for our sin. And so look with me, if you will, at verse 24. After describing our plight, wonderful, glorious words. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I want you to see how Christ upends our horrible condition, how He meets us in our plight, and He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. The first thing I want you to note is simply this. You and I, we have no need for a defense anymore. We don't need to defend ourselves because look what verse 24 says. 
we have been justified by His grace. That word justified is a form of the great doctrinal term justification. It's a word you ought to know. Now that word justification, it's the heart of the gospel of Jesus. For here's what's involved when God says that He justifies you. Like a judge, He comes before this cosmic court and He bangs the gavel declaring, you who are guilty, you who lack a defense, not guilty. He declares in a way that only He can that we are no longer liable for the sin we have committed. We have been declared by the judge of the universe not guilty. So see the multifaceted wonder of this doctrinal word justification. Well, on the one hand, it's a passive act. Because notice what it says in verse 24. It says we are justified. That doesn't mean we did the justifying. It was done to us by God. This is God's act. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot bring a defense. God is the defense lawyer. Jesus, He pleads your case. It's a passive act. Moreover, it's a legal act. As I've already inferred, this is the judge declaring for you what you could not, you are not empowered to declare for yourself. Not guilty. It's also a just act. And the reason we've got to remember this is it can sound like God's being an unfair, unjust judge. Would it be right for God to look at you and I as a sinner and declare us not guilty when, of course, we know we are? The reason justification is indeed just is because what God has done, and we'll see this in a moment, is He has transferred the guilt and the punishment to another. Sin has not been swept under the rug. It has been decisively paid for. And lastly, I want you to see that it is also a gracious act. And of course, the reason it's gracious is because there is nothing in us that deserves this. There is no part of me that deserves to stand before a holy God with no need of a defense. There is nothing within me that deserves justification. It is simply the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that I stand before Him this moment justified by His grace. So remember, dear brother and sister, that you who were defenseless gain a great defense in Christ. He justifies you. The second thing I want you to see in this wonderful power of Christ's forgiveness for us is this. We don't need a defense anymore. We also no longer require an excuse. And the reason we don't need an excuse before God anymore is because look what He's done. In verse 24, He has not just justified us, The second thing it says He's done for us is He has redeemed us. Verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption, I want you to think on that word with me for a moment. On the one hand, this is a commercial term. In other words, to redeem something is to use money to purchase, to pay for. It was often used in the ancient days. It would have been used to buy, for example, a slave or maybe to go exchange for something you required. You were paying it off. You were paying the ransom so that you could gain what you wanted. And this is really what Christ has done for us. He has come and He has paid the penalty for our sin so that we no longer stand before God guilty. This is what is doing This is what is happening when God redeems us through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. He has paid it all. Redemption is also a costly act. 
And the reason it's costly is because Christ didn't pull out a credit card to pay for our sins. Christ spilled His own perfect blood as the only payment for our sin. And so we stand forgiven. The power of forgiveness is illuminated by the fact that Christ's blood was paid, was spilled on our behalf, paying the penalty for our sin. He did for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And so we stand before Him no longer needing an excuse. He excuses us who had no excuse. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And one third and final way, Christ upends the effects of sin in our life is this. Number three, we don't just need, no longer need a defense. We don't just no longer need an excuse. Praise be to Him. We no longer need to find a way to escape the punishment we deserve. For Christ has done something that we could never do ourselves to escape this punishment. And we see this at the end of our text in verse 25, where it says, God put forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood. Now that word propitiation, that's an unusual word. You don't hear that too often. That word propitiation was borrowed by Paul from the Greeks. The Greeks would use this word to refer to the way they would go and please the gods. They believed in this pantheon of gods that were angry at them. And so what they would do is they would try to make those gods happy with them by doing all these variety of acts to make them pleased with them. And the word they would use to describe those acts is they would try to propitiate the wrath of these gods. And what Paul does is he takes that word and he borrows it and uses it in the context of the gospel. And he says, the Bible is very clear that God is justly, as a holy God, He is justly angry at sin. His wrath is due you and I. We must be condemned for our sin. But what God has done is astounding. He has put forward Jesus Christ. And what Jesus has done is Jesus, just like those Romans and Greeks of old attempted to do, Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God. He has quenched it. He has taken it away. So now God no longer looks at you and I as guilty sinners with the just wrath we deserve. Instead, that wrath has been transferred to Jesus. Just go read Isaiah 53 and see the astounding reality of God's wrath being redirected from us to Jesus Himself. This word propitiation, it's a sacrificial act where Jesus ends up paying the wages of the sin we deserved. And of course, the wages of sin is death. Jesus dies the death that we deserved. It's not just a sacrificial act, though. It really is a substitutionary act because He died in our place. Jesus hung on that cross so that we would not have to hang there, so that we would not have to pay the penalty for our sin. And so I want you to think about those words justification, the word redemption, and the word propitiation. Three loaded theological words that are the bedrock, the foundation for our faith. For when Jesus did these things for us, He made it possible for us to no longer need a defense before Holy God. He made it possible for us to no longer need an excuse before Holy God. He made it possible for us to no longer need a way of escape from a Holy God. He met each of them in Jesus Christ, and we now stand forgiven. And so, let's take a step back with me as we conclude our time 
and just remember the weight of your sin illuminates. It makes crystal clear the power and the strength of God's forgiveness. Brother and sister, you must give yourself to daily dwelling, confessing, repenting of your sin. Don't move past it. Give yourself daily to introspection and saying, Lord, examine my heart. Oh God, would you see if there is any grievous way in me? Lord, show me my sin. Confess your sin before God daily. And then repent of that sin and trust in that moment in the power of God's forgiveness. And when you do that, you will see just how good the good news of Jesus is that God has come and done for you what you could not do for yourself. He rescues you with His almighty power. He forgives you when you could not earn it yourself. But perhaps tonight, as you hear these simple gospel truths, things you've surely heard many times before, maybe you find yourself in this position where upon hearing these things, you say, Kyler, I know my sin. And I appreciate the reminder that it's, it's, it's something I need to think more about. But I know it. I feel it. I sense it. I feel the guilt of my sin. And I know the good news of Jesus. But I just don't know, is my faith saving? Am I actually trusting in Jesus' ability to forgive me? How do I know? How do I know my faith is real? Because it just feels so weak. Right now as I watch the news, right now as I turn on the TV, right now as I surf the internet, I find my faith shaking. I find my hope wavering. I find myself just so uncertain. And if that's you, just consider an analogy I've shared with many of you at Hickory Grove before. It's not original to me. This was made up by a guy named D.A. Carson. He's a well-known New Testament professor, scholar, and he imagined a scenario in the book of Exodus where when God came to bring his judgment on the nation of Egypt, he imagined that there were two uh, Israelites standing there awaiting that final plague where God would come and he would bring the angel of death. But he would spare, he would pass over, the Bible says, those who took the blood of a lamb and painted it on the doorposts of their home. And he imagines two Israelites, and maybe you'll identify. One Israelite is standing outside the house and he is nervous as all get out. He's shaking, he's concerned, and says, I've put the blood over my doorpost. I'm trusting that what God says, but I'm scared to death. I just don't know, Lord. I don't know, is my family going to be safe? Is he going to pass over the house? He's speaking to another Israelite who, cool, calm, and collected, stands there with arms crossed and says, I have complete trust and faith in God. I have no worry at all. I am counting on him to pass over me. And D.A. Carson asked this question that I want you to consider with me. As you consider these two examples, which one of those men is saved? Is it the one who had shaky, wavering faith or the one who had this cool, calm, and collected faith? And the point Carson tries to press home is that both are saved. For it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. Jesus alone can save you. You are not saved by how confidently you declare the power of His forgiveness. You are saved by the object of your faith. You are saved by the one 
who does the forgiving. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He alone saves you from your sin. And so tonight, as we conclude our time, I want to invite you to just reflect with me on the wonder that Jesus alone can save you. And if you just this moment turn to him and trust that he can do for you what you cannot do for yourself, you will see the wonder and glory of the gospel of Jesus, that he came to save sinners like you and me. Would you join me as we pray? And we'll conclude our time this evening together. Father in heaven, I ask that your hand would be upon every man, woman, and child tuned in this evening. Would you protect them from the evil one? And would you help them see, help me, Lord, see my sin and see my need and power of your forgiveness? Do this, O Lord, I pray, for the glory of your name and the good of this church. In Jesus' name, amen.